So with that, we're going to read from Mark 5. So if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, please turn to Mark 5. We're going to read verses 21 through 43. Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. And it reads, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowds around, crowded around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Teleth kom, which means little girl, get up. And the little girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he had told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. God, thank you. For your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your love for us, and thank you for your spirit that guides us, Lord. What an incredible story that we've read in your gospels, a true story. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to read it and see how you work, and we are so thankful that you do. Thank you for the love that you have for us, Lord, and thank you that we can gather together and worship you. And as we have worshiped you through music and song, through announcements, through planning ahead, and now through your word, will you speak to us, prepare our hearts to receive what you have in store. Will you use me as you see fit? Whatever you want me to say, I say, and whatever you don't, I don't. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. So as we are continuing in our series, 
my encounter with Jesus or encounters with Jesus, uh, what I've been doing is I've been walking through the Gospels, presenting the Gospels, and we've been jumping through different Gospels, and, and really the focus has been Jesus' encounter with individuals or people or people groups. And this morning, it's not too difficult, I don't think, to see what the actual encounter is. It, it's easy. You could see all of the encounters. I'll, I'll lay them out in a moment. But what a story. What an incredible story. I love this story. Um, if you uh, had seen my notes previously, I had, I had set it up in a different way that I was going to present the gospel, the, throughout the gospels in different ways. And this week was actually supposed to be about the Pharisees. But I changed my mind. And at the bottom of my notes, whenever I send it out to some leaders and the people in the back who need to know what I'm doing so they can keep up with me whenever they click the slides, God bless you for doing that, um, <clears throat> I put at the note, subject to change by the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> so, um, and Mark, who puts the slides together, the scripture slides, he knows that I won't send him uh, the scripture until this morning, probably later than he likes, but he loves me, so he does it. Uh, just for that very reason. And not that I just wrote the sermon this morning. I had changed my mind earlier in the week and we had talked about this. And really the whole reason why is just this, this contrast of what we read last week. Last week we read about uh, the rich young ruler and, and the one thing Jesus asked him to give up was too much. Too much. And he turned around and he walked away. And then this morning as we consider this story, we're seeing... For two people in particular, the one thing they ran to Jesus for. There's such a contrast. So this morning as we consider this, I just, and we really look, we're going to go back and forth between the two main characters, and the two main characters, at least how I see it, is Jairus himself and the lady who has the bleeding condition. And, and, and really what we're going to see is we're going to go back and forth, and then we'll see Jairus' daughters, the disciples. I always feel like the disciples are like two steps slow and a day late, but I love them because um, I'm like three steps behind and I'm still in the last week. So I identify with that. And then, of course, we'll see the mourners and the crowds who laugh at Jesus. Can you imagine laughing at Jesus? And not because he told a joke, but because you think he can't do what he says he's going to do. Alistair Begg wrote and has said, often if you follow him and leave him, you will not believe in the actions of Jesus if you do not believe in the words that he speaks. And that's what we'll see here with those people who are mourning in the family. And yet what we will see and what I've noticed more and more is that as we approach these two main characters, they are desperate. They are in desperate circumstance who have no hope apart from Jesus. And desperate circumstances, at least in my own life, makes me run to Jesus. And that's what we see, these desperate circumstances is the only thing that Jairus and the woman suffering from the bleeding have in common. Yet desperation allows them to throw off any concern for social norms and expectations. We'll talk about that. What both of these people did to Jesus coming to him in the way that they did was not socially acceptable. But they don't care. It doesn't matter what it looks like. When you've been bleeding for 12 years, or if your little girl is at home dying, it doesn't matter what everybody else say you should do. This is what you do when you run to Jesus. But part of hardship and suffering outside of the fact that we live in a fallen world is to bring us to closer to Christ. And once we know him as Lord and Savior, these crises and sufferings that we face 
is to work in our life to make us more dependent on him. I know that it's, it's a familiar passage, but sometimes we get too big for our britches. As Christians, we think we got it. If you were part of uh, youth camp, I told many stories of my friend who always said, I got it, guys. And he said it just like that. I got it, guys. But the reality is, and I know I've said it many times before, we don't have it, guys. But Christ does. And, And what we will see is this contrast back to the rich young ruler who, if you were anything like me, I felt really bad all week long thinking about this guy. All you had to do was sell your possessions. And yet, now we see all you have to do is come to Jesus, and they did. There is, what that, there is in considering what we have to give up to follow Jesus, considered, uh, considering the cost to follow Jesus. And what is that one area that Jesus is asking you to give up? And as I was considering, thinking about this, and really circling back to hardship in general and suffering, I find that suffering and hardship, regardless of the degree of severity in your life, I've noticed that the one part, at least for me in Christianity, that I find myself coming back to in times of hardship, there's a few things that I I go back to. Whenever I face a hardship of any kind, once I get my bearings and I get over myself, that is, the first thing is I count, I go back and I look at what Christ has done in my past. And that's helpful. But the other thing I think that helps me whenever I'm suffering or I'm seeing someone that I love suffer is I, I am reminded that we serve a God who suffered. There's no other religion in the world that they believe that their God suffered, yet we have a God who sent his son to suffer and die. And that just reminds me that Jesus knows what I'm feeling whenever I'm going through something hard. It's not that he's some far-off cosmic being just shaking his head or laughing at me, but he suffered, and he can relate. That's why, the, that's why whenever we suffer and when, whenever we find someone who, who has gone through something that we have, different support groups, we appreciate someone else who has gone through it. So as we consider this encounter with Jesus, what what we are going to see is we're going to see how Jesus handles all the expectations, and yet he's still Christ. And as as we walk through, we will see how these encounters change their life. And it's an obvious one, but I do want to pull out some things that perhaps wasn't obvious from first read. And while I was reading this passage, I couldn't help think about how important prayer and running back to Christ is when we get into a situation with no end in sight. Because he knows what it's like, and he can do something about it. Now, I don't know about you, but there's different prayers in my life that I pray. There's the prayer that whenever I'm reminded uh, by my five-and-a-half-year-old daughter and say, well, are we going to pray about it or not? (laughs) Well, I think we should. Thank you. Then there are times whenever I pray because I promised someone that I would pray, and I see them coming, and I think, (gasps) I didn't pray for them, dear God. (laughs) Amen. And it's a prayer bomb. I don't know how else to say it. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but sometimes there's prayer bombs. And I've prayer bombed you. But then there are times when it's a hardship that I do not stop praying. And I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying. And then I stop and consider, am I treating this like a genie? If I get to the 100,000 prayer mark, then it will count. But I'm sure you've all been there. You're weird too. 
But just our, our appreciation when there is something so bad, so painful, so awful, that we don't get up from our knees and we're always praying. And this is what we see here. So at least by my count, I count there are five, five main people or people groups who have had encounters with Jesus. There's Jairus, the woman with the bleeding issue, the disciples, the mourners and the family, and then the young daughter. And actually, like I mentioned, Jairus and the bleeding woman, they're interwoven with their encounter, and we'll walk through that. This story is told through the Synoptic Gospels, and I mentioned that last week of what that looked like, and really what that is is it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. Uh, John is different. He, he writes more of a personal uh, testimony of what happens, the character looking at it from like a third point of view, if you will, but, but as if it's notes in a journal. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, you will see that Mark many times takes two people or two main characters and does this interaction contrast with them and brings them back together. Only Mark does that. It's, this, it's so interesting. Theologians call this the significance of interpolation of the Markian narratives. Fancy, huh? In other words, it's a Markinian sandwich. And if you want to bring it down just a bit, because I have to, Mark makes a good sandwich with two characters and blends them together. So, so my challenge to you is see if you can find at least 15 of these sandwiches when you read through the Gospel of Mark. At least 15. There's more, but I won't tell you how many, just because it's mean. But, but consider it, because what he's doing in this story is he's taking Jairus who is this well-known, well-educated, well-respected person. And then he's taking this lady who has a bleeding issue, and we don't even know her name, and he's showing how important they are to Christ. Two people who would never hang out for any reason at all. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And how God levels the ground. But Mark does that, I think, better than anybody. And just showing the issue as he goes back and forth. So as we consider the story, let's just consider what the contrast is. So as Jesus gets out of the boat from verse 21, and I'll tell what happened earlier in Mark 5 in another encounter with Jesus, but essentially just the bare bones is he cast out a demon and he puts the demon in the pigs. They run off, off the cliff. The guy is very happy. Everybody's very sad because the pigs died. So they ask Jesus to leave. Can you imagine that? Jesus performs a miracle, saves a man's life, saves a whole village, and they ask him to leave because, well, now what are we going to do? But that's for another time. So that's why he's on the boat, and that's why he's crossing the lake. When a large crowd gathered around him on the shore, then a leader of a local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. The other gospels, Matthew and Luke, say that she's 12 years old. Mark waits to tell us later that she's 12 years old. And we know that he's a leader of the local synagogue. He's not a rabbi, but he pretty much in contrast is like the rich young ruler from last week. 
He's the one who does all of the organization. He's the one that probably owns the land or at least gave the land. He is the one of high stature. He was very wealthy. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. You don't do this. You don't throw yourself at anyone's feet, regardless of who you are. Because you're essentially saying, I am not worthy and I need help. And again, in the Jewish tradition, since they have come out of slavery with their backs always bent over, this was such a contrast. This was not socially acceptable. So if you imagine there's a large crowd, people argue how many thousands of people were there. It doesn't matter. There was a lot of people, probably like a Disneyland line. I don't know. But there's a lot of people, and he sees Jesus, and he pushes himself through the line of people who are trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, he throws himself on the feet. And everyone there would have known him because he's from that area and they would have watched this well-respected man throw himself at Jesus' feet and everybody would have said, what is he doing? He's not allowed to do that. And then he pleads in verse 23 fervently with him, my little daughter is dying. She's 12 years old. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So he, he would have known that Jesus could have healed her because Jesus has already been performing many miracles at this time. But the interesting thing is since he's part of a local synagogue, he probably shouldn't have believed because all of the Pharisees and, and the majority of the local synagogue leaders did not believe. But yet when you are at your end of your rope and you tie a big knot and the knot comes loose, then you throw yourself at Jesus' feet. So not only is he doing something that's not socially acceptable, the moment he throws himself at Jesus' feet, he lost his job. He's lost everything, but wouldn't you if your daughter or son was sick and you knew Jesus could heal her? And what's interesting here is, and we'll see the contrast is, he says, please come lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. In his mind, the only way that Jesus could heal her is if he touches her. So, verse 24, Jesus went with him. He agrees, and he follows. And all the people followed, crowding around him, because they watched this happen. And there's a, if you're in a large group, there are a lot of people there. There are some people who want to see it just to see it. There are some people who believe in Jesus. There are some people who, want to, who are hoping that Jesus will fail to say, see, he's not who he says he is. There's a lot of reasons why people hang around to hear about Jesus, but yet they all follow. Because this man, he's coming, he says, my little daughter. So the encounter that we see here to begin with with Jairus is his little daughter is dying. And when you watch a loved one suffer, it is a form of suffering all on its own. And if you've ever experienced suffering of any kind or if you've watched a loved one suffer, I don't know which one is worse, to be honest with you. I think, at least personally, it's really hard for me to watch someone who I love suffer. And I think sometimes that can be overlooked. The powerlessness that you can feel is overwhelming. I remember when Ryder was five and he broke his leg and I was so angry that he broke his leg because of the dumb bouncy slide that we were on and I probably bounced him too high, but it's probably, and it is, my fault. But I was so mad and all I wanted to do was like, man, he's five. Like, he can't even use crutches. I wish 
It would have been me. Have you ever said that? I wish I could take this from you. But whenever we face this overwhelming suffering and disappointment, there's really two things that can happen. One, it will either make you harder or it will make you more tender. You will either get hard-hearted or you will get tender-hearted. It will either make you weaker or it will make you stronger, depending on your attitude. When we face suffering of any kind, we will leave unchanged, guaranteed. And, dad, and the dad here only thought that Jesus could heal his daughter if Jesus had put his hands on her. My little daughter is dying. So, continue on, verse 24. Jesus went with him, all the people followed. A woman in the crowd had suffered from 12 years of constant bleeding. 12 years of constant bleeding. How old is his daughter? 12 years old. It's so interesting how Mark brings this out and the other, other gospel writers do as well. But this little girl, her whole life was coming to an end at 12 years. This woman had been suffering for 12 years and here they are on a path to cross places with Jesus. The girl who is 12 years old and the woman who has a 12-year-old problem. It's remarkable. Verse 26 goes on and she says, she had been suffering a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In the Greek in which Mark is writing this, the suffering a great deal from many doctors, it would be considered malpractice. The doctors were just taking her money. There was no healing of this kind because of the constant bleeding internally, the ovarian bleeding, and, and, and there was nothing they could do. And the other reason there was nothing they could do is because they wouldn't be allowed to touch her without being unceremonially unclean. So this lady for 12 years has been separated from society, completely separated from society. So just as now Jairus is throwing himself at Jesus' feet, giving up everything, losing his job, his prestige, and everything that's important for his daughter, for these 12 years, she was an outcast, and there was nothing she could do. She couldn't go to the temple and worship because she was unclean. If anyone touched her, they were considered unclean. They would have to go through a mitzvah, which is get into a ceremonial bath. You get clean, and then you come out clean again. It's the same thing that Jesus describes whenever you die or whenever he died and we die with him on the cross. We are unceremonially unclean and then we are risen alive in Christ. So she shouldn't have been in this crowd because people would have known her. She wouldn't have traveled much. She spent all of her money on the doctors for malpractice. They probably, it suggested that they just gave her some herbs or made her go do different kind of washings and different things, different prayers, but never would have touched her. So here she is in a crowd of people hiding and trying not to touch anyone, but it doesn't matter. She just knew there was something she had to do. So verse 27, it says, she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. He just was going there just to maybe touch Christ, maybe if Jesus could lay the hands on this young girl, maybe if I just can touch him, I'll be healed. 
uh, whenever uh, we, we go to Israel, Lord willing, and if you come, we'll go to Magdala. And in Magdala, there's this, uh, the short answer, the short story is, is it used to be a resort, but then this Franciscan priest bought the land. And as he was trying to build a church, a Catholic church, they found something old, and in Israel, if you find something old in the ground, you have to call antiquities and they come and they tell you what to do. They could say, nope, this is ours, or here we have to do it. So what they did is they found a town and a temple. And so they built a church, and inside this church, in the basement, in the bottom, there is a picture of this woman touching. So I, I have the picture here so you could see. I think maybe. So this doesn't do it justice, but I think if my math was correct, I think this is about a 20 by 40 picture, 20 feet by 40 picture painting. And when you go into it, and then this is where we had one of our devotions, and it was a very powerful time, but it just shows the power leaving Jesus. But why, and, and the description of why is this so powerful? Because if you want to have a powerful picture, I looked into it, you have to show people's faces or you have to show the scene. Let's see, let me look at my notes so I say this correctly. Either pe people's faces, their expression, or you have to show God's beauty in the sunset, the forest, the trees. But here, this, for me, is so powerful, and there's no faces. But yet, even in the hands, you can see the desperation. So as we consider this, this lady who was not allowed to touch anyone knows that if she could touch the hymn, there's a song, the hymn of his garment, it actually should be translated to the tassels at the end of his garment because Jewish men wear tassels and the tassels are a reminder of all of the laws of the Jewish showing that they are walking within the law. So she knew something about touch. So in verse 28, it says, For she thought to herself, If I can touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the, bloody, the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus, in verse 30, realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? So imagine again this scene. There's thousands of people, and she sneaks in, probably similar to that painting, and she goes and she touches his garment, and she's instantly healed. I've never physically been instantly healed, but trying to read reports, you would know you were healed. And immediately, I think this is important not to skip over verse 30, Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around. The healing power left. See, Jesus is fully God and fully human, so he felt everything. Remember at the beginning, part of at least what helps me is that to realize that, that God suffers. He came to be fully human, to suffer not just on the cross, but everything. So he felt this. That's why he would have to go off into the desert and pray to the Father. That's why whenever he was tempted by the devil, he was exhausted. This cost him something. To do the work in the ministry cost Jesus the human side of him. It 
drained him. He felt it. And then he said, who touched my robe? Now, as as we consider the disciples and their encounter with Jesus in this brief moment, his disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? Jesus, silly Jesus. There's lots of people touching you, which is interesting if you consider this, if there was indeed lots of people touching Jesus, which I would imagine intentionally, not intentionally, why was only this woman healed? Why didn't everyone who came and touched him just automatically, miraculously feel the healing touch? She is the only one that came faithfully to touch Jesus. So again, just as Jairus threw everything and it didn't matter what it looked like, socially accepted, he went to Jesus and she did the same and she touched him in faith because she knew that she would be healed and he was healed. And then to continue on, but he kept looking, verse 32, but he kept looking because the disciples said, oh, silly Jesus, everyone's bumping into you. But he didn't pay attention to them. He didn't even respond to them. He didn't answer their question. This is one of the times that Jesus doesn't answer the question. He, but he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And it's not because he didn't know. He knew exactly who it was. But it was for everybody around to know who touched Jesus wanted everyone to know that this encounter, that this lady who had been bleeding for 12 years, he wanted everyone to know what faith looked like. And then, verse 33, the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. So then she gives this whole explanation which would have been nice to have in there, but we already know the story. But I can only imagine that she came. She was fearful. She was trembling. She probably didn't know that she was in trouble. All of her encounters with any other rabbi would have been scary, non-existent. She would have been treated less than. So I would imagine, if I'm thinking, she probably would have started or began by apologizing. Can you imagine that? I just wrote it out just for my... So... I wrote this, I am so sorry, but I didn't know where else to go. You are the great healer. I didn't want you to see me because I was ashamed, but I knew I had to get to you. So I touched the hymn, and I'm healed. So at this moment, you can imagine this crowd is all whispering and talking and pointing and probably some are saying, get her out of here. And in verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. The word that he used for daughter is the same word that Jairus used for his daughter. And since we already read it, it won't be a spoiler alert, but whenever he grabs the girl's hand and says, daughter, get up, it's essentially saying, it's a term of endearment. Sweetheart. 
So if you go back and consider what Jairus did, he said, my little sweetheart is dying in verse 23. Sorry. In verse 23, my little, my little sweetheart, the apple of my eye, she is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. And now going back to verse 34, and he says, Jesus says to this lady who had been bleeding for 12 years, sweetheart, my little girl, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. This is the only place that's recorded where Jesus calls someone daughter or sweetheart. This lady who had been bleeding for 12 years and the daughter. And if you, and if you notice at the very end of verse 34, it says your suffering is over. It's, it's actually three parts here that he's healed. The first one, he says, your faith has made you well. You're saved. You're with me for eternity. Go in peace. You can go in peace because your physical ailment is over. But whenever he says your suffering is over, in the Greek, what that's referring to is your suffering in society is over. You will now be accepted. I have called you daughter and you will now be able to return back to society. You are no longer an outcast. Then verse 35, he says this, your suffering is over, and while he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter, your sweetheart, is dead. There is no use troubling the teacher now. So just imagine for a moment that you are Jairus' parent. You're, her fa- you're Jairus and your daughter is on the verge of death. Luke says she's already dead. Mark says that she's on the verge of death. She's dying and she's about to die. Now imagine that this is you and your daughter is just about to die. And you earnestly and you give up everything for to follow Christ, to throw yourself at Jesus' feet. And he takes time for whom you consider a nobody. That would be hard. It would be hard for Jesus to consider anybody else. Who here likes to wait for the doctor? They have you wait in the waiting room, and then they have you wait in the little white room, and then they come, and then you think they're just playing on their phone I know there's doctors in here. I love you. But that's what you think. That's why you get so frustrated. Now imagine if it's life or death and you just scream out. Imagine Jairus at this moment. He had to have been thinking. If only you would have hurried, Jesus, there still could have been time. My encounter with you, Jesus, is being interrupted by the encounter of someone else. There's something about the way that Jesus works in our lives that sometimes we get selfish and think this encounter is only for me and me alone. And if Jesus is dealing with me, he can't be dealing with anyone else. But yet we try to put Jesus in a box because in our life, we can only help one person at a time. Granted, we could be a group of people, but our focus is 
one at a time. This lady comes in a touch of faith, not this simple touch. She's healed, and Jesus, great, you healed her, but why do you have to talk to her? I mean, I'm just making this as humanly as possible. I would think this. What are you doing? And then he hears, leave him alone. She's dead. Don't waste his time. Don't, don't do it. There's this, this anxiousness that had to come over him. I, I, can't even, I can't even picture it. I haven't even faced that situation, the closest that I've ever faced it. And I've told the story, and I won't go into it. It was when Nora and her grandfather, her opa, fell 15 feet off a balcony, and I thought she died. I didn't care about my father-in-law. He was holding on to her. I opened up his arms. I thought he was dead. I just wanted to see if she was dead. I'm being completely honest. Oh, yeah, you're awake. Good. Oh, she's awake. Good. And then, do you get it? Do you, for those of you who have children, you understand no one else matters. See, and this just came during our prayer time this morning as we were getting ready, is that Jesus has urgency but not desperation. We have this desperation. We're saying, Jesus, you got to do this right now. I only see you can only do it this way right now. But yet there's urgency. If there wasn't urgency, Jesus would have never come to the earth. But there's urgency, but not desperation. Jesus didn't say, oh, no, I'm late. Now she's dead. Great. I'm so sorry. I wish I could have been two places at once. Um, Sorry. But what does he respond to her, to them in verse 36? But Jesus overheard. Them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. The same word as the, as the lady who had faith that she could touch the hem of his garment. This is when one of these Mark sandwiches, he always uses the same words to, to, to show the comparison and then the contrast and then bring it together. Essentially, he's saying, don't be afraid to have faith like this woman who did. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except for Peter, James, and John. So there's this big commotion, and he says, don't be afraid, just have faith. And he says, you guys stay here. You three guys come with me. In verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. Just a side note about that. Even today, but not as much, the Israel tradition is when someone died, you would hire professional mourners. It sounds as weird as it is. You would hire someone to mourn. You would hire a crew to come and cry and whine and throw themselves about because in the old time... uh, for various reasons, they couldn't keep the body cool or anything like that. They would have to bury the dead pretty quick. So in order to really express yourself, you hired professional actors and actresses to cry, <laughs> you know, and all that, to help you get in the mood and to cry. And also, even the poorest person in Israel could hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. So whenever I die, please bring flute players. <laughs> but really, to, to really show the emphasis, uh, the, the Eastern culture, if you, if you notice, 
they're mostly way more expressive than the Western culture. That's why if you go to an Eastern Orthodox wedding, there's a lot more yelling and screaming and you can't have a conversation. At least here, mostly, unless you're line dancers. Just kidding. Um, It's more subdued. Even whenever we do uh, celebrations of life here, we're more quiet. When the kids start talking, shh, they're dead. You know, that, that's what we do. We cry, we try to keep it together. And, and, and I'm not saying one is right or the other. I'm just simply pointing out the reason why there's so much commotion and weeping is there's actors and actresses hired here to cry. And since he was a wealthy man, he probably didn't have just two flute players and one wailing woman. He probably had a lot. So, verse 39, he, he went, Jesus went inside and asked, why all the commotion and weeping? Again, it's like, what do you think, Jesus? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. See, what, did, what, what we're doing here, what Jesus is doing here is, first of all, he touches the unclean woman, and that represents in the future that he, t- he is taken, when he dies on the cross, he's taken all of our uncleanliness pierced it on his body so we can made clean. When he says this child isn't dead, she's only asleep, she was really bodily dead. She was dead. But what he's saying is she's only asleep because for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, when we die, it will only be like we took a nap and we'll wake up in paradise. So what he's saying is, is all, stop all this weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. In verse 40, here's the encounter with the crowd. The crowd laughed at him. Wait, I thought you were mourners and crying. So this just shows that it was a show. They laughed at him. Don't, what do you think we've been doing this whole time, Jesus? But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Tukum come, which means little girl, get up, sweetheart. It's the same, the description is, Whenever your kids sleep in on Saturday morning and you're not upset because they're doing it, but you want to wake them up and you say, sweetheart, it's time to get up. It's not get up, you bum. It's time to do chores. It's wake up, sweetheart. It's the same, again, it's the same thing. I can't stress this enough. He has compassion for both this little girl and the lady that had been bleeding for 12 years. The same. Same Christ, same Jesus, same compassion for both. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. The reason he gave strict orders to tell anyone that had happened is because he still had work to do. He still had ministry to do. And he wasn't in the position that he wanted to deal with all of the Pharisees yet. And then he told them to give her something to eat. Every time there's a resurrection, bodily resurrection, you eat to prove that you were fully alive. When Jesus uh, shows up to the disciples, he eats with them. Whenever he reinstores Peter, he has fish and he eats with them. He tells this girl to eat with him. When Lazarus is risen from the dead, eat. Because the tradition then, or the, the superstition, I should say, of the Israelites at this time was people could come back as ghosts, and the way that you knew they were ghosts is they couldn't eat. So Jesus is dispelling all of that and saying, feed her, she's not a ghost, 
In my cartoon mind, I just think, see, I'm touching her. My hand's not going through her. It's not weird. She's going to eat. She's fully alive. So as we consider these encounters, we see the encounter of Jairus, and we don't hear from him anymore, which is interesting. The last that we hear from him is when Jesus said, don't be afraid, just have faith, and he brings him and his wife in to see this daughter, their daughter of theirs, wake up. We see the encounter with the lady who had been bleeding for 12 years, uncleaned, but Christ came for her too. Again, this is foreshadowing that he takes all the uncleanliness of us. He is here for everybody. I always say it, the foot at the cross is the even playing field. But what Jesus is doing here is with his encounters, he's not only showing his powerful, miraculous abilities, but he's bringing people to him to point to the cross to say, I've made a way when there is no way. Really, as I was considering this and how to deal with this, some, some, of the, some of the people, maybe even some of you are in here thinking, yeah, but I've prayed for a miracle and I haven't seen this physical healing touch. Or I've lost all of this stuff that I have. And just as in consideration of it, if, if we build our world around other people and material our world will come crumbling down when we lose that. And the reality is, and I don't have to convince you, we will all face hardship. We will all face suffering. We will all face physical death. For those of us who put our trust in Jesus, we will have a new body. We will be with him. But we will all face that here in life. And when the world comes crashing down, if we've only built it on everything else besides Christ, we won't know where to go. Because suffering takes away health, it takes away success, and if the meaning of your life are those things, not only is it destroyed, it will take away your life. And again, if your meaning of life in this world isn't based on something concrete and reassurance as your faith in Christ, you will have no foundation. That is why in the secular world, people who do not have hope in Jesus builds everything around in this world and point at wealth and success or prestige or anything else or relationships. But I would also suggest that's not just a secular issue. It's real easy for me to fall back on the things that I have, especially relationships. I'll close with this as we consider this. Paul Brand uh, was a Christian doctor born in Britain, and he was one of the foremost in the early, late 1800s, foremost uh, doctor in India dealing with leprosy. He spent the first half of his work as a doctor in India, the second half of his working career in the U.S., and he's, he's written many uh, books to contrast uh, how being a doctor and having faith and how they came together and, and some of the reasons why some doctors don't believe. And it's very fascinating. But one of the things that he wrote about and he was talking about was the existence of pain. And specifically, he was talking about those who had leprosy. 
And if you don't know what leprosy is, it's that eating of the flesh until you lose your limbs and then eventually it takes your life. And one of the issues long before you lose your limb is you lose the capacity to feel anything. And he writes, he says, the existent, he said, the most problematic aspect of creation is the existence of pain. However, God designed the human body and after the fall so that it is able to survive because of pain. Don't give up on your pain. Then he goes on and, and he says this, and I'm paraphrase it. He says, when I was in India, people expected that this world would be hard. In the U.S., they expected this world to be easy. He would go on and say, in the U.S., I encounter a society that seeks to avoid pain at all cost. The West live in far greater comfort and level of safety than anyone else I had previously treated. Yet, the U.S. is far less equipped to handle the suffering and far more traumatized by it. Even those who have faith in Christ. So part of our encounters with Jesus is to help mold us and make us more like him. And when we read this story and we look at the transformative power and the healing power of Jesus, it can be easy to think that we are missing out on an encounter, that our encounter with Christ isn't as big or as bold or as rags the riches or as exciting as other people's encounter. And plus, in our encounter, sometimes we are worried that other people have better encounters than us. But yet, if what Dr. Paul Brand describes is, sometimes we are far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it because we like what we have over the comfort that's only found in Jesus. Now, I'm not a fatalist, and I'm not saying, hey, let's get rid of everything and put on robes and just cry all the time. It's just when we are facing these situations, part of what it, we could do is remember that God came down and he suffered. So putting our faith in Jesus does not guarantee a miracle to this body here on earth. It can, it may, but putting our faith in Jesus does guarantee a miracle to our soul. That's far more important. And plus we'll get a new body, so that's cool too. So with that, I'd like to invite Trent to come up and share his encounter with Jesus. Come on up, Trent. We're going to clap for you. <clears throat> because coming and speaking in front of everyone is so easy and so fun. Just kidding. All right, Trent. Hello, everyone. Uh, so my encounter with Jesus, I had to really think about it. And I thought of one a few weeks ago. I was uh, I was gonna go. I was going to gonna go to a uh, comedy show with some coworkers of mine. Uh, Kevin Kevin Hart was the comedian, and if you know who Kevin Hart is, he's not exactly the cleanest person when speaking, and. As Christians, we shouldn't subject ourselves to cursing or pro provocative words. 
and I was <laughs> go and uh, on Wednesday, two days before the concert, I was invited. I was invited to go up to Peaceful Pines and do some roofing. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name drop <coughs> Keith Bilcamp. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you know, it's just that morning air. Uh, but and so, and I was really struggling with the decision because I wanted to. I made a commitment to my coworkers and to go see this concert with our comedy show with them. And by but and but Camp Peaceful Pines is a really important place to me in my heart. It's where I found Christ. And so I was struggling with that decision. And on Thursday, the next day, uh, I went to the men's barbecue. And Keith was telling me that I, uh, he did, that he was telling me the dangers of going to the concert and subjecting myself to that. And I thought that that was, and that was my encounter as I felt that Jesus was telling me not to go, not to go and to go to do Camp Useful Finds because as we know, God says not to have both one foot with the rest of the world and one foot on him. And so I felt God was making me choose, choose him. So that's my encounter. Thank you, Trent. I appreciate the encounter like I've appreciated all of the encounters and the differences, but yet it's still the same Christ, still the same Lord. And the other part I appreciated is that our encounters is not just us, me, and Jesus, but sometimes it's a friend. So thank you, Keith, for that. I wasn't going to say your name, but Trent made me, but <laughs> all right. But just as we consider this, just, just be reminded that the encounters that we have with Jesus is not diminished by the way that he works in other people's life. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time, and thank you for our encounters, and thank you for the story, how you had and have love and compassion for both that little girl who you called daughter and that woman that no one wanted anything to do with, and you called her daughter as well. And you call us sons and daughters for those of us who put our trust in you. And thank you that you've come into this world to suffer on our behalf, not just on the cross, but to be fully human, to experience, as we are reminded in your word, all that we've experienced, you have experienced. Your heart has been broken on many, many accounts that we can't even understand or comprehend and, or measure, Lord, and yet you did it because you love us. So as we consider the encounters that we have with you, may we not compare it to others, but be thankful that you are alive and well and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So Lord, as we continue to sing songs to you, we just thank you for this encounter that we've had all together with you. We praise your name. Amen.